guys, and welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. I am Josh Horowitz. Welcome to my podcast. Thanks for tuning in. As always, guys, I always say tuning in, Sammy. I need to, like, stop myself from no, saying No, it's part that. of your charm. Really? By using antiquated, really? <laughs> using antiquated phrases that nobody else uses? Yeah. You are not working the microphone. Look I'm sorry. You. It's the new mics. We have new mic stands. I don't even know. I, you have to sit up very straight. Well, I think we're going to very soon move through this wall that I'm gesturing to that people can't see into an actual podcast studio to record what these intros. What do you intros. mean, out of the sewer where we normally record We're not in a, <laughs> my office a sewer? That's very rude. Um, so hopefully the professional quality of the audio at least, not the content. The content will remain shitty and uh, amateur if hour. If not get worse. Probably. Um, but uh, the audio quality I think will, will um, improve, which is a nice thing. Um, and yeah, but th- there's some new bells and whistles coming soon to Happy Sad Confused. But that's for the future. Right now, I should say that um, this week's episode is uh, is, a, is a kind of a personal um, uh, love of mine in that it's a Star Trek episode. It's a very Star Trek-centric episode, and Star Trek is something that I grew up obsessed with. Yes, I went to Star Trek conventions. I know it's shocking. I didn't know that. Sit down. You're already <laughs> sitting down. Are you shocked at all? No. <laughs> I love Star Trek. And um, the guest this week is a, a filmmaker, a writer and director by the name of Nicholas Meyer. Now, if you if you like Star Trek or if you love Star Trek, you definitely know who Nicholas Meyer is because he's arguably the filmmaker that kind of resuscitated Star Trek back in the 80s. Star Trek, for context, had, um, you know, went off the air. Um, they made a, a Star Trek motion picture, which made a lot of money, but was not really well received. It was kind of really a stiff, dry movie, frankly. And then this guy, Nicholas Meyer, comes in, young filmmaker, one film under his belt um, called Time After Time, another good movie I recommend, um, and uh, directed Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. He also, frankly, and he'll tell the story, he basically wrote the movie but didn't get credit for a variety of reasons. Oh. Um, and, uh, and Star Trek II remains, I think, by most people's um, estimation, the best of the Star Trek movies. What do you think? Absolutely. No, no brainer. No brainer. Star no Trek brainer. II, The Wrath of Khan, I watched it again recently, um, is just a, a purely entertaining movie. And, and it works, I think, also, frankly, if you're even not, not even a Star Trek fan. Um, it was so good that they, you know, J.J. Abrams kind of remade it in a way in Star Trek Into Darkness. Benedict Cumberbatch did his um, Khan, etc. So Nicholas Meyer, all of which to say Nicholas Meyer is a, is a really, really talented and interesting guy. He's, um, I was telling you before, he's a uh, born and bred New Yorker. Love that. Love that. He's um, and had a, a very interesting career in that, like beyond Star Trek, and he, he contributed to three different Star Trek films. He directed two of them. He wrote, uh, co-wrote on another one. Um, is also, as I said, he uh, directed a really interesting movie called Time After Time, which is super entertaining. He did he did a, a bunch of these like stories, whether in novels or in film, where he kind of uh, threw together different characters from literature or real life. Oh. So Time After Time is about H.G. Wells meeting Jack the Ripper Ooh. in kind of a thriller. It's really good. I, you should see it. So it's got, it's got um, Malcolm, Mc, homework. Malcolm McDowell. Love. Great. Um, David Warner. Do you know who David Warner I is? Don't. You would recognize him. He's a great character actor. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he's a really scary Jack the Ripper. And Mary Steenburgen. And, and this is the movie that Mary Steenburgen and Malcolm McDowell met and fell in love, and they, in and love. they got in, they got married, and they had a kid. Yeah, didn't last. I mean, the kid lasted, but not <laughs> it's dark. <laughs> kid didn't last. No, I think the kid's a director too, actually. Anywho, mm-hmm. um, also uh, is a filmmaker responsible for, um, among other things, he, he directed um, the day after, which was like this. I remember when I was a kid. 
it was uh, this TV movie about like a nuclear holocaust, and it was like I think it remains like the most watched. TV movie ever. Your favorite movie. <laughs> super funny. Super fun. No, but all of which is to say, Nicholas Myers is a super interesting guy, uh, responsible for a lot of stuff that was important to me growing up as a film fan, as a film geek, as a Star Trek geek. And um, he was in town um, for Star Trek 50th celebration. So oh. there was a giant thing at the Jacob Javits Center mm-hmm. over last weekend. And they uh, actually asked me to moderate this Q&A with him before a big screening of Star Trek 2. So I basically spent like half the day with him. He came here for the podcast. Your heart burst. It was kind of fun. And it was like... Um, Did you ask him all the burning questions? There were some burning questions asked. You'll get some 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 uh, burning questions asked. Mm-hmm. There's also a little hint. He doesn't... He, I mean, he's not able to spill much, but it's exciting in that he has returned 25 years after the, his last contribution to Star Trek. He is a writer and consulting producer on the new Star Trek TV show. Oh, baby. I know. So he's hard at work on that right now. Um, Star Trek Discovery is coming to the airwaves, I believe, January next year. Um, and um, I think they have some big announcements coming soon, too. Uh, the word on the street is that the cast is going to be announced soon. And again, for any Star Trek fan, the fact that it's coming back to TV, where it obviously had, had a was birthed and really belongs is really exciting and the fact that Nicholas Meyer is a part of it is awesome so that's the Nicholas Meyer preamble mm-hmm. I think this um, conversation works for Star Trek fans but also um, he's, a, he's a very erudite and oh. yeah I feel like I have to use words like that talking about him because he's a, he's a super smart guy and um, a lot of literary references etc that like I pretended to understand mm-hmm. um, but um, I think for any writer, director, film fan, TV fan, um, this conversation will hopefully be very entertaining. Um, what else to say? I don't know. I love that his mom calls during it. Yeah, I think I think I kept that in there. Yeah, his mom, uh, who, I mean, he's 70, he's 70 years old, so you can do the math. His mom's... I really, that really... <laughs> uh, and it seemed like a conversation I would have with my mom. Like, mm-hmm. it was very, like, quintessential, like... Mom call, so Aww. very sweet, um, and uh, and yeah. So and then yeah, as as we tape this, um, I'm about to jet off to the Toronto Film Festival. You're gonna go across the border. Crossing the border. Um, <laughs> Your Canadian accent. Crossing the no, not at all. I crossing the border. Crossing the border. <laughs> um, and uh, so, and the next episode of Happy Second Confused, if all goes according to plan, will be kind of a special episode taped. So special. So special uh, from Toronto with a, with a bunch of really cool people that I don't want to mention yet because you never know. But um, some really cool folks that I'm talking to there. So uh, look out for that and uh, go see lots of movies. It's a good time. Move, the, 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 the good movie season is starting. I was going to say, I feel like it's starting to get like... Oh, yeah. The summer was not so good. Summer wasn't the best, but um, I've I, seen a lot of... like I'm screening a lot of movies right now, and um, and there's a lot of stuff at Toronto that I'm really excited to see. So um, I think we're in for some good things. And even this week, I haven't seen Sully yet, but Sully... Um, as we tape, the Sully opens on Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, Clint Eastwood always, you know, delivers. Tom Hanks always delivers. Um, and then uh, I would I would mention like one new release that opens this week that I saw at Sundance that I think is worth your time is Other People. 
um, starring uh, Molly Shannon, um, and uh, it's directed by a guy named Chris Kelly, who's, uh, I think he's the new head writer at SNL, and it's um, produced by Adam Scott, former Happy Set Confused guest, and... Um, shout out. Shout out, Adam <laughs> yeah. Scott! Um, but it's good. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of like a, a dramedy. Um, I mean, it sounds kind of like by the numbers in that, like, it's about Molly Shannon playing a, a mom who's uh, you know, suffering from cancer, and her kid comes home, etc., but, uh, but it's well done, and funny, and heartfelt, and, um, and Molly is awesome in it. I'm she's calling awesome her Molly as if I know her, but like she's you re- do. no, not really. <laughs> but she's uh, she's great, and um, you know, hopefully ma- she's one of those kind of performances that hopefully like lets her do other cool things. Oh, I hope so. I love Molly Shannon. She's the best. She's the best. She's the best. <laughs> Shout out to Molly Shannon <laughs> yeah. and Nicholas Meyer and Adam Scott. This is all love <laughs> on the podcast today. Um, so that's the preamble for this week's show. As always, hit me up on Twitter, Joshua Horowitz. I feel like I haven't said that enough lately. Uh, let me know what kind of guests you want to hear. Uh, remember to rate and subscribe. I don't yeah. say that enough. R&S. On, on iTunes. That does make a difference, guys. It would mean a lot to me and to Sammy, right? Yeah, it really would. Um, <laughs> any social media um, offerings you want to give up? No, Sammy Heller. Uh, let me know your uh, favorite, something you learned on Happy Side Confused <laughs> this week. <laughs> One to go on. One, yeah, a more you know moment that Aww. you had this week dun, while you dun, were listening. Dun, dun. <laughs> um, and now, hopefully you get something out of this. I know I did. Uh, here's my conversation with a filmmaker, writer, um, super smart dude, Mr. Nicholas Meyer. It's like a master class. Welcome to master class <laughs> with Nicholas Meyer. <laughs> Sir, there is no official introduction. Oh no, you've fallen asleep already. Nicholas Meyer has fallen asleep in my office. There, there, there's no introduction. There's, so there's no introduction. A, we just like start talking we and just that's start it. Start talking, like, are, human, are, like human beings. Are, are we talking now? I think we're, we're recording. This this is the gold. This this is at the actual. You're, you're okay. You're being podcasted. So I'm um, so. Okay, so I was going to do my talking dog joke, but no, it's not too late. No, there are several of them. We'd have to okay, pick. Okay, we'll get we'll get we'll get to those. Um, thank you so much for coming to my office on a uh, relatively quiet uh, day in Lower Manhattan. Um, it's good to see you, sir. It's good to meet you. Thank um, you. We're spending a lot of quality time together because as we tape this um, in a few hours, we're going to be screening Star Trek Two at this ginormous Star Trek convention at Jacob Javits. This. Um, yeah, and that, okay. I can't wait to see how it comes out. <laughs> I, I, spoiler alert, I think Spock dies at the end. Oh, no. Um, but it, it, it's honestly a great thrill to have you here because, you know, as you can tell, I've just moved into this office, so I'm still putting things together. But, like, I am certainly someone that uh, was the right age for when you came into your own as a writer-director and your films I've uh, seen many, many times. So it's, this is a rare treat. Thank you. Um, so, uh, first of all, can we just do a little uh, background? I mean, uh, you, I believe you're, you, were, you grew up here in the city, yes? Yeah, I was born on 66 at York, a New York hospital. You can see the plaque. <laughs> there you go. If you've had enough to drink. <laughs> um, and you, and you uh, spent your formative years here? Yeah, I went to PS183, then I went to the Ethical Culture School, then I went to the Fieldston School in Riverdale. Very nice. I'm a born and bred New Yorker myself, the, the west side, so we're, we're like... We can still be friends. We can still talk, right? Um, and so what did your parents do, and was there... My father was a psychoanalyst, and my mother was a concert pianist. Um, a, a lot of... So that begs the question, I guess, what the... Um, 
I mean, was was arts kind of a big part of your childhood? Was there a lot of theater? Uh, it was a total part. It was a total part. I was spoon-fed everything. I was taken to the ballet and the opera and plays on and off Broadway and lots of movies and music was omnipresent. My mother practiced the piano eight hours a day. In fact, my crib when I was a child was under the piano, which I think is why I'm a leg man. <laughs> now, did you, um, what were the formative sort of uh, viewing experiences of your childhood, whether TV or film? What are the ones that stick with you to this day when you think back to the, the stuff that really... Well, it's interesting that you, that you say this because my, my father, the shrink, uh, once said that I was a sort of poster child for something called the counterphobic experience. Mm -hmm. And counterphobia is where the object feared turns into the object loved. Mm -hmm. And he, he gave me two examples of this. And one of these had to do with my love of ships, which began with a counterphobic experience. I was in my mother's arms standing underneath the forward funnel of the Queen Mary as we were on our way to Europe. It was like night. You know, I was two years old, and the whistle on that thing went off. And I don't know if you've ever heard one of those whistles, but you could hear it all over New York. Right. And I jumped a, a mile, and ever since then I've been infatuated with boats and the number of times I wound up crossing the Atlantic on various ocean liners. Even as an adult, I, I just couldn't get enough. And when you get to Star Trek, and it's really all about ships, yeah. it's just... Um, so that was a counterphobic experience. And the other one was the first movie that I ever saw. We did not originally have a television, and I was taken around the corner to the Cinema One to see, or maybe it was the Baronet or the Carnet, um, Laurence Olivier in a movie called The Beggar's Opera. The Beggar's Opera, which dates from 1728, is really the first musical. Right. Um, and later, Brecht and Kurt Weill remade it as something called the Three Penny or the Thrupney Opera. But it originally, and, and uh, Peter Brook, still alive, I think when he was 23 years old, directed this movie, which may not be a very good movie, I don't know, because I ran out screaming terrified in the middle of the movie because they were going to hang Captain McKeith. And the fact that it all had music, far from making it a less vivid or real experience, only served to make it more real, sure. which is really what opera does anyway. It opera is like it, yeah. life on LSD or something. Right. And eventually I became infatuated with movies, with that movie, and with... Laurence Olivier with that actor. I can probably turn this That's all good, yeah. Um, so, yeah, those are counterphobic experiences, and they resulted in my lifelong love of movies and ships. Those, those are two examples. What, what, what did you imagine? What was the first inkling of what you wanted to do when you were a kid? I mean, did, were you dreaming of being a writer, being in the arts at all, or was it, were there other dreams before that? Oh, I think I wanted to be president, and I wanted to be a fireman, and I, I can't, you know, I yeah. had the usual things. And um, I, I never decided when somebody says, when did you want to be a writer? I never decided any such thing. Right. I, I just something I always did. I was always 
scribbling. And I originally, I think I used to make up stories and my father would write them down for me. And then when I was about five or six or something, he said, here, I'm tired of doing this. Write your own. And I've basically been scribbling ever since. Um, and as far as movies were concerned, I was totally in love with movies. I was obsessed with Jules Verne. Uh, I think I bonded with the, the Nautilus in t- Disney's 20,000, 20, sure. which I still think is Disney's best movie. And uh, But that became the mothership when I think I was accidentally left in the theater all day mm. and saw it about you know 20 times. Um, and then... When the movie version of Around the World in 80 Days came out, uh, I was taken for my birthday to see this. I don't know if you ever saw this Around the World in 80 Days, the Mike Todd thing. It was a fantastic, fantastic movie. And it was a, it was a roadshow picture. You, it was a hard ticket. Right. And there were program. There was a program book, which I still have, which you could buy for $2. It was a hardcover book about the making of the movie and in it was an article that said you too can make a motion picture no previous experience necessary (laughs) he's at the heart clearly (laughs) and this was about mike todd whose only movie this had been and he was killed later in a plane crash unfortunately but it was a sarcastic article. Sure. You t- all you need is 68,000 people in six countries and $4 million, <laughs> and you can make a movie. But a I was 11 years stars. old, yeah. and I, I didn't get the sarcasm <laughs> part. I just thought, hey, you too can make a motion picture. And how old were you at this I was about point? 11. Yeah. And, I, and, and having seen this movie and having had as like a, a religious experience, and my father had the same experience and I know that he had it because he came out and immediately went to the box office to buy another set of tickets to this thing Um, so I said to my father I said pop I want to I want to make a movie and not being the sharpest knife in the drawer the movie that I wanted to make was the movie I just seen (laughs) I wanted to be Phileas Fogg and my best friend, who grew up to edit my films, incidentally, played Passepartout. And my father, who was really a sort of an artist manqué, he, he, he was a terrific pianist in his own right. Sure. You know, the definition of a psychoanalyst is a Jewish doctor who can't stand the sight of blood. <laughs> and so he, so he fell in with this scheme with alacrity. And for the next five years, over weekends school vacations, summer holidays, family trips to wherever, we took this 8 millimeter wind-up Paul Revere or Revere camera um, and roped in a lot of parents and a lot of kids and made this movie. Your own version of... You bet. It's an hour (laughs) and ten minutes long. Wow. Um, And... uh, it's, it really puts the other one to shame. Clearly, yeah. How's your, how's your performance? People, you have to, first of all, give up your previous notions of what great <laughs> acting is. You redefined great acting in your own way. It's not since Chaplin in City Lights, I think, <laughs> has there been such a... And the funny thing was, okay, we filmed it over five years. When I start, We started filming by the time I was about 12 or 13, because it took a year to sure. get our ducks in a row. And we filmed out of sequence the way you wind up filming movies because whatever's most convenient. 
So I like grew bigger and smaller <laughs> over the course of the next five years. In some scenes, you know, I'm 16 years old. In other scenes, I'm like 12 and change or something. It reminds me of this recent. I haven't seen this film yet. I don't know if you've heard of it. There's this um, Raiders of the Lost Ark shot for shot um, kind of remake that some kids made over the course of I think like a decade. I was pioneering this whole idea. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm serious. Yeah. I, obviously, that that was. I was very early in doing that, and I'm sure their movie is much better than my movie um, because they probably have a lot more resources right. at their disposal than I did. But I do think I was probably first in there, me and Steve, uh, Steven Spielberg, in, in making our own movies when we were kids. Do, um, I mean, you know, those, those formative experiences, I think for any, any Die Hard film fan... Uh, like you or I, like growing up, it's hard to match those experiences as we grow older. But do you find that you still can get the rush of excitement from going to see a movie in recent times that you had when you were a kid? Or Absolutely. Yeah? Yeah, I think anytime anybody sort of commits to having an artistic experience, and I'm not limiting it to film, when you go to a play, when you go to the ballet, when you when you go to the opera, no one's going to have a bad time. Sure. You go with a sense of tremendous anticipation and expectation, and when the house lights dim, and you reach into your popcorn or not as the you know occasion demands or allows, you're ready for something wonderful to happen. And usually, I should add, you can tell within about two minutes, right. whether the people doing this thing know what they're doing or they don't. You know, I, I've seen productions of La Boheme that sucked from when the curtain rose. You go, no, you don't know how to do this. Right. Uh, or, or movies where you're just gripped from the get-go. I just saw uh, Hell in High Water. Oh, I've heard it's great. I haven't Fantas- seen it yet. It's a yeah. fantastic movie. Um, and there are a lot of good ones. Most of them don't come out of Hollywood, but they're there. Well, there's nothing I love more than like going to see. I see a lot of movies for my job and for pleasure, but like being in, feeling like you're um, being held by the hand of like a, a great filmmaker that knows where to put the camera and knows how to tell the story. I feel that every time I see a Quentin Tarantino movie, like you know, some are brilliant, some are just very good. But like from the first scene, you can see a clear vision. You see somebody that knows what they want to tell you, the story they want to tell. Well, it's interesting this whole idea about. Knowing whether you're in good hands or in any hands at all. Many years ago, uh, I met with Stanley Donnan, mm-hmm. who wanted to make a musical out of the Seven Percent Solution. Oh, wow! And I wasn't quite sure how we could do this, but I, well, I he wound up coming to have dinner at our house, and my daughters who were absolutely fixated on all his movies were sitting there. <laughs> staring, because there he was. And my oldest daughter had said to me, she'd come back from college a couple of months earlier, and she said, Pop, I have a bone to pick with you. You showed me Gene Kelly, but you never showed me Fred Astaire. And having shown me Fred Astaire, Gene Kelly looks awful self-conscious up there by comparison. <laughs> Fred Astaire, it's just sort of organic. Right. It just seems to be happening. And so I said to her while we were playing Scrabble with Stanley Donna, yes, I played Scrabble with him, and I said, ask him, ask him. And she goes, no, no, I couldn't. I said, ask him, just see what, because he directed them both, see what he said. And she goes, Mr. Donnan, he goes, Stan, 
She goes, Stan. <laughs> well, once you're playing Scrabble with somebody, you're allowed to use their... So she says, Stan, and she enunciates her thesis. And he's, he said, well, prefacing my answer by reminding you that Gene Kelly was my friend and we came out to Hollywood together. He said, I, I have to say I think you're right. Um, among the artistic distinctions that you can draw are between artists, and he's not saying that one is better than another, Artists who never let you forget that you're experiencing them. And artists who are the great invisibles. Right. So he said, when you watch Marlon Brando, you are never permitted to forget that you are experiencing Marlon Brando. When you are watching Federico Fellini, right. uh, you are not permitted to, f- to forget it's Fellini. On the other hand, when you look at Bicycle Thief and you wonder, where's the director? Where is it? It's invisible, right. but it's also perfect, and it's, it is simply there. The camera just happens to be there. And it's not like, you know, some directors, you use Tarantino as an example, who do not, you're, you know. Um, Alec Guinness, sure. you know, there. And Fred Astaire, it's just happening, and you can't see it happening. It's just happened. When you watch Marlon Brando as Terry Malloy, you're not seeing Terry Malloy. You're seeing Marlon Brando as Terry Malloy, Marlon Brando as Stanley Kowalski. You're not totally 100% in it. I mean, both are enjoyable. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Do you, I mean, do you have a preference? Like, do you want to be lost and, and forget as much as you can that you're watching someone well, direct for, or act? Or? For me, story is king. And I don't want to be outside the story. Right. Uh, on the other hand, there's no way you could tear me away from anything that Marlon Brando sure. is, is doing. Or Jack Nicholson or whatever. I mean, the people that are a little bigger than yeah. performance in a way. But the most amazing stuff I've seen is like watching Alec Guinness. Yeah. Alec Guinness is just, and I'm not talking about Alec Guinness and fucking Star Wars either. I'm, <laughs> I'm talking about Tunes of Glory. I'm talking The Bridge on the River Kwai. I'm yeah. talking The Man in the White Suit or Lady Killers. Lady or, Killers. Yeah. Perfection. Yeah. Perfection. Yeah. Or what about Kind Hearts and Carnets? Sure. Which you know, what does he play? Eight people. Right. <laughs> So you're okay. So so backtracking um, in terms of your circuitous route to becoming a writer, director of film, and it was kind of a circuitous kind of route, right? Because I mean, you obviously, I guess your first, you know, accomplishment, as it were, that got you on the map was as a novelist. Correct to say? Or well, it's yeah, it's certainly what I did in my spare time, in the sense that I was writing movies. I was writing movies for television. Um, and then the Writers Guild went on strike, and we weren't allowed to write screenplays. And the woman with whom I was living at the time said, well, now you can write that book you keep talking about. And the book that I evidently kept talking about was my novel in which Sherlock Holmes met and joined forces with Sigmund Freud while undergoing a cocaine withdrawal cure. <laughs> After the book came out, people thought I was a cokehead. And I said, you're obviously not reading the book because having researched this drug, I was like, not going to touch this with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> anyway, um, so the book, which I wrote for my own enjoyment and arguably hers, um, you know, put me on the map big right. time as it was 
a bestseller on the New York Times list for 40 weeks, and there was no one more surprised than Mrs. Meyer's oldest. <laughs> was your obsession, um, infatuation with Arthur Conan Doyle, Holmes, something that came out very early and has it sustained? Are you still as enraptured by those stories to this day? The stories are wonderful. I discovered them, what, when I was about 11 or 12 years old. I guess my dad showed them to me. And there are 60 56 short stories and four novellas. And at the end of them, there's no more. (laughs) And so a lot of people, I'm not the first, have taken it upon themselves to write their own, you know, uh, further adventures. I've actually done it now three three times. And um, it's a sort of feel-good undertaking. Um, And no, I've, I've not lost my affection um, but I'm a real purist. I, there's almost no Sherlock Holmes movies that I've ever seen that I haven't despised. Really? Yeah. I never liked the Basil Rathbone Holmes. I liked him as mm-hmm. Holmes, but I never understood taking it out of period. I never understood Watson played by Nigel Bruce as a buffoon. Right. I thought, that's too easy. Holmes is very vain. What he wants is not the admiration of a subnormal man. He wants the admiration of someone who's, you know, sort of regular. Um, Jeremy Brett mystery back then. And, I, I grew up with those. How, 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 I, don't, I haven't seen them in decades now. But. Well, I find Jeremy Brett a little twitchy yeah. for my taste. There was an actor named Ronald Howard who did a series on British television okay. with another actor named H. Marion Crawford as Watson. And I think Ronald Howard's Leslie Howard's son. Oh wow! And I, I liked those. But what are the Sherlock Holmes movies that I've really, really liked? I loved the one with Michael Caine and Ben Kingsley called Without a Clue, right. where Sherlock was a dummy and Watson <laughs> was the smart one. I thought I was hysterical. And I love the Billy Wilder, the Private Life yeah. of Sherlock Holmes. Um, What's your take on the Benedict Cumberbatch, Stephen? Moffat? I love those. Do you? Yeah, I was very surprised by how much I love Benedict Cumberbatch's. Yeah, as sure. I thought that was great. So, were you were you on set? Were you much when it was uh, turned into a film and you wrote the screenplay for that film, Oscar nominated, I believe, for that as well? Yes. Yes. Um, were you involved in the production very much, or was yeah? It I was on I was on set because I knew I was going to direct after that, so I wanted to watch from soup to nuts. See somebody directing a movie, so I would know what to do. So yeah, I guess that was my question, is by the time um, Time After Time came, which was your directing debut, correct? Um, Did you feel like you knew how to direct? Did you feel like you were ready to direct? I still don't feel like I know how to direct. (laughs) You're always learning. Um, Which is, someone said, do the things you're scared to do. Um, And when I can work up the nerve, that's what I do. Uh, no, I didn't know what I was doing, and I think the film probably would have been an even better film if I had known what I was doing. But as it was, there are enough things in it that work, starting with the script and starting with the performances, that today it's been turned into a television series. Which I know you're not necessarily so thrilled with, I, I would imagine. I haven't seen it. <laughs> uh the, but the um, so I'm very keen to look at it, and I suppose it's a big compliment to yeah. have your movie turned into a television series. Do you have you have you gone back and looked at time after time at all in recent years? Oh sure. You know the, the funny thing about looking at your own movies is it's like showing home movies of your life, 
And all you can see are all the things you did wrong, the shots you didn't get, the time you didn't go close enough, the day the actor yelled at you on the set, all that stuff. And I, I can think of these examples, which are not to do with me, but I remember being at uh, BAFTA when I lived in London, and th they interviewed David Lean, and I was sitting in the fourth row, and the moderator or the interviewer says to him, he said, I love the moment in the bridge on the River Kwai when the doctor says, madness, madness. And David Lean says, I hate that moment. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole audience goes, ah. And we say, you, you hate that moment? Why do you hate that moment? He says, because the moment we finish the close-up of James Donald, the producer, whom he was on the tip of his tongue to call him a kike, uh, Sam Spiegel, um, but he didn't. He said, but that cheap producer put James Donald on a flight back to London, and it's a double who walks away after the line. Right. And David Lean didn't like the way the double swings his arms. Um, so he doesn't like that moment. And then by the same token, I was watching on television an AFI tribute to Willie Wyler. And Wyler was sitting there, and Betty Davis was supposed to be delivering a speech about how great he was. Mind you, they made something like four movies together, and they had some torrid affair. But no, she got into an argument over a line reading in, in I don't know if you've ever seen the letter. I haven't. Oh, it's a good, it's a good picture. Okay. It's a Somerset mom story, mm -hmm. and she plays a murderess. Um, and she says, and she started to go on about the, the argument they had over a line reading in the letter while they're on TV. Well, seems like an opportune moment to do it. And, she's, and she, <laughs> she, she got angrier and angrier. She goes, and I know I'm right. <laughs> so it, it's, it's, it's like that. And the last example I'll give, because I just love these things, is I, I, I met Paul Henry, and they met him. Somebody introduced him to me or me to him on the pavement on the sidewalk outside the Motion Picture Academy in California. And I thought, well, this is pretty exciting. And I said, you know, I have to tell you that when you tell the band to play La Marseillaise in that movie, I fall completely to pieces. And he says, I hate that moment. <laughs> and I, I go, what, what? And he said, yeah, because the moment I told the band to play La Marseillaise, they all go like this. And their heads swivel right. And I go to Michael Curtiz, the director. I said, where are they looking? He says, oh, we'll cut to a shot of, you know, Rick. Right. And he'll give them the high sign that it's okay to play. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm Victor Laszlo. I'm leader of the resistance in the free world, and I can't get the band at the ass end of nowhere to play La Marseillaise without they check with the barkeep? It's ridiculous. <laughs> and Curtiz says, yeah, but then, you know, Bogey doesn't have anything to do with this. It's not my problem with the bogey. It's everything. And he's, this is on the sidewalk, and he's getting like angrier and angrier and angrier. So the answer, long-winded as usual, is yeah. I've seen time after time again, <laughs> I, and I, I've seen the seven percent solution again. And, and for a long time, I just thought all I could see was the things wrong right. with the screenplay of the seven percent solution. Just got me crazy that it was the problems that I thought I had, you know, created. 
So I didn't see it for 20 years. And then I, I sort of got stuck at a screening where I thought I was going to walk out, but it was pissing rain or freezing and I had no place to go. So I wound up sitting there and watching and I thought, you know, this is the movie that the New York Times referred to as the most exhilarating entertainment of the film year. And you had a poster of it in your house. Did you never read the poster? <laughs> it was a really good movie. And all the things that I remembered as being, you know, defects, yeah, they were there, but they don't really matter to right. the degree that it, they blew you, up. It was in out of perspective, given the time, at the time. Yeah, so, yeah. Which, which leads us chronologically to your involvement with, with, with Star Trek, which, like, it could be argued that you were not necessarily the most likely person to... I was the least likely person to be involved with Star Trek. I, mean, I you didn't know what it was. Right, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, you couldn't avoid the TV series, I would think, but you weren't necessarily an aficionado. Well, I never watched a whole episode because I saw the guy with the pointy ears and I just kept going. (laughs) I I didn't know what it was. And when I was at the University of Iowa uh, and the show was on the air, I had a friend who was a graduate student in American history, and he used to take acid every day and watch it for like 54 days straight, at the end of which time his wife left him. And... uh, I, I did not do any of the acid or any of the watching, but I just witnessed that whole thing, and I thought, I don't know what this is, and I don't know why they're in pajamas, and I don't know why he has the funny ears, and no. <laughs> no. So I didn't know what it was. So did it take much? Because, I mean, there's actually a really fascinating um, new kind of oral history book that's out that you, I think you're one of the many that were interviewed for. It, that I, It's also in my memoir. I wrote a memoir, sure. which is called, what's it called? Um, <laughs> the View from the Bridge. Right, right, right. Uh, Memories of Star Trek and a Life in Hollywood, Viking, Penguin, whatever, in which this whole stuff is, all this stuff is recounted. But it is fascinating. You can read the book or give me $2 off the top and we'll forget the whole thing. (laughs) Or you can just listen to this podcast. Okay. No, listen to the podcast, then read the book. Find the book. But to talk, at least in brief about it, it it is fascinating in that it's coming off of this ginormous, you know, Robert Wise film, this esteemed director who who did a gorgeous gorgeous film that, that left some cold. It works for some to different degrees, whatever. Financially, a huge success, and yet then they make a movie. They they greenlight a movie at like a, a fraction of the budget, and you have very little time to make it. Essentially, to get it um, done, there's a bunch of scripts that were written that weren't working, and in the end, correct me if I'm wrong. You you essentially wrote your own screenplay in two weeks, twelve days, twelve days. What happened was. Um, uh, how I got involved in all this was that a friend of mine, a childhood friend, uh, who was then an executive at Paramount, was over one night and flipping burgers at my house, and I uh, was holding out for a movie that I wanted to do that nobody wanted to make. And she said, Nikki, if you want to learn how to direct, uh, this was after time after time, so I had one movie under my belt. She said, you should direct, not just sit up here, you know, holding your breath for something that may or may not happen. Why don't you come down and talk to Harv Bennett, who's in charge of producing the new Star Trek movie? And I said, is that the one about the guy with the pointy ears? And she said, don't be such a snob. I think you would like him. I think he would like you. Why don't you go down and have that talk? So... 
you know, it's the sort of thing that if your mother had said this to you, might punch her in the gut. But because it was a contemporary, I, I went down. And I did indeed like Harv Bennett very much. And they showed me the movie. And they also showed me some of the episodes. Um, and I found myself getting stoked. There was something pleasant about this that I had not anticipated something it reminded me of that I couldn't put my finger on but made me happy and then later I realized I was with me it's always realizing whatever it is later that it reminded me of these books that I used to read when I was 12 or so around the same time I was plowing through Sherlock um, was the Captain Horatio Hornblower novels of C.S. Forrester and so I thought Oh, and that's about an English sea captain during the Napoleonic Wars, and he has a girl in every port, and that seemed good also to me at the time. And uh, so I thought, okay, this is Hornblower in outer space. Right. And then I got kind of excited about it, and, I, and he said that draft five of the script was coming in. So I sat around, and then I looked up, and it was like a month later or something, and there was no... Draft five, and I called up Harv, and I said, you know, what happened? And he said, oh, I can't send this to you. It's not good. And what he actually said was my tits in a ringer, which I had never heard before. Uh, it doesn't sound good, though. It does not sound good. Uh, so I, I said, well, what about draft four or draft three? And he said, kid, I was always kid. Um you don't understand, these are just five different attempts to get a second Star Trek movie. Right. Much different kind of storylines in each They of were them. all different. Yeah. And I know they were all different because I said, why don't you send them up? And in those days, you didn't hit send. A truck would arrive, a van, with all this pile of trees. <laughs> and uh, so I sat there. I'm a very slow reader. And I read through all these drafts. And then I made a meeting with him and I said here's uh, well, what about if we make a, a a list of all the things that we like any of the things we like in these five drafts it could be a major plot it could be a subplot it could be a sequence it could be a scene it could be a character it could be a line of dialogue I don't care and then I'll try to write a new screenplay that incorporates as many of these things as possible. And he and his producing partner, Robert Salon, were sitting in my house, and they didn't seem very happy with my idea, and I thought it was a good idea. And I said, what's wrong with that plan? Why can't we do that? And I had the legal pad, everything. And um, they said, well, the problem is that if we don't have a screenplay in 12 days, then ILM, which is the special effects house that's contracted to do the shots, said they can't guarantee delivery of the shots in time for the opening of the movie. I said, what, what opening of the movie? <laughs> and they said, oh, the movie opens June, whatever it was. Right. I said, it does? <laughs> you, 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 you book the movie into a theater and you don't have a movie? Welcome and to, it's only my second franchise movie. culture, yeah. And I, well, <laughs> I don't think there was a franchise culture then. It was just like distribution culture. Yeah, yeah. And I, anyway, long story short, I said, okay, okay, okay. I'll, I, I can do this in 12 days if we, do, if we start now, right now. And they said, 
well, we couldn't even make your deal in 12 days. And I said, well, forget about my deal. I'm not talking about my directing deal, but I'm just saying if we don't have a script, there's going to be no movie. So are we on or off? Come on. So we picked, you know, Genesis, Kirk meets his son, Khan, um, Lieutenant Savick came in there somewhere. Um, I'm sure there's other things that we picked. And then I just went to work with my sort of hornblower overlay on the whole thing. I don't remember anything about those 12 days except how my back was out by the end of it because it was typing. And as I was writing, I began to understand what the themes were that were sort of inherent or implicit in this narrative. And those things were, as near as I could tell, friendship, old age, and death. That's what this movie was going to be about. And no one was paying any attention. I had really sort of total autonomy doing what I was doing. Um, And that's sort of how it, 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 it came out. And... No writing credit yet. No, there was no writing. I didn't even put in for a writing yeah. credit. Um, and then, and later, one of the sidebars to this that was really unexpectedly rewarding to me was that when they did the DVD of Star Trek and they interviewed me to do it, and I told them the story that I just told you, and a word came back, well, we can't put any of that on the DVD. And I said, why not? And it was all about Paramount being afraid of getting in Dutch with the Writers Guild. And I said, well, then just take me out of it entirely. Take me out. If I can't tell the story of how this happened, then I don't want to be a part of it. And my friend at the Paramount DVD said, that's what I hoped you would say. Now I have ammunition. And that's where this clause comes from that's on all DVDs now. The opinions and views expressed wow. in this you know, DVD are not the responsibility Amazing. of Paramount, Warners, Fox, Universal, you name it. And that changed all those um, articles or whatever you want to call them, segments, yeah. on, and from puff pieces into oral histories. That's the, Which are invaluable to any aspiring yeah, filmmaker or yeah, film family. And it myself, doesn't necessarily mean that everything you hear is true, but, but at least it's, the it's, it's not censored. The yeah, exactly. It's not censored. It's different people's version of what happened with them vis-a-vis their participation in a given movie. And I'm very proud that that clause was the result of, of my intransigence. Well, one, one question about um, Khan, and we're going to talk more at length about this tonight at the screening, but I'm I'm curious. I mean, I watched it again recently, and I've watched it literally dozens of times. I, it's a it's it's a such an entertaining film. It remains so today. Um, is Montalban's performance, which is just amazing. <laughs> um, when you were writing that in that like in those twelve days, how did you know he still had that in him? Because he was making Fantasy Island at the time, and like on paper, like I mean, I don't know. That's just it, it's 180 degrees from what he was doing day to day, and hadn't done for years. Um, were you... That's a very interesting question, and it's interesting for a lot of reasons, and believe it or not, I've never been asked that question. I've been asked a lot of things about Montalban. He was a lovely, lovely man. Um, and he was the only actor that I didn't get to rehearse with, because I like to rehearse. Not over-rehearse, not too much, but enough so that we all know kind of what's in the ballpark, because that frees you up. 
once you're on set to do stuff. Right. Um, but he was still filming Fantasy Island. I would be lying to you if I said that while I was writing this, I was giving any thought to what he had or didn't have in him. Um, I think that we, we, memory plays us false. I'm giving you my memories, but my memories are not always accurate. And I found this out. This is a sidebar, but what the hell? Um, People said to me, did you have dealings with Gene Roddenberry when you did The Wrath of Khan? And I said, well, I don't think so. I I think I met him, and that was about it, because he was not involved with the film. And then I was shown on a visit to the University of Iowa, where my papers reside. There was a big Star Trek exhibit. And there were all these memoranda, single-space typed, and rather vehement, not to say vitriolic, exchanges between me and Gene Roddenberry that I'd completely blocked out. I, you know, so I was giving a wrong answer or an inaccurate answer to that question for many years. So when I tell you now that I don't think that I gave much thought to whether Montalban could or could not. I'd never seen Fantasy Island, so I was certainly not prejudiced by it. Right. Um, I suppose if you're going off of what you see in Space Seed and, uh, you know, it's not... More than that, I've seen all his other movies. Right. This, he was a great actor. Yeah. When you see, what was that border, cro- the, the border crossing where he plays that... This was a, he was a fantastic actor. Sure. And like most actors, wasted in roles that were not worthy of him or you're doing garbage or something but when you can see some movies where he's really terrific and I was certainly familiar with those movies and I was not familiar with Fantasy Island other than you know posters of him in the suit and the other man saying the plane the plane (laughs) that was all I knew so no I had no I mean, for him, it must have been manna from heaven to get that script and see those lines and see this kind of... I mean, I mean, again, Well, just... his, his stories about it were that he said, well, I read the script, and he said, and I saw that I was not in the movie very much. And this, you know, worried me a little. And then I saw... Then I realized, he said, when I am not there, they are always talking about me. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So, so he said, okay. But it was funny, because the first time I... We got to work on this thing was the first day that he shot. And we shot this scene in the Botany Bay where he has like a six-page soliloquy about why he's so pissed off at, at James T. Kirk. And since my main experience was directing theater, and I always thought how... And I even on Time After Time, I thought, how sad that we're always saying cut. It's coitus interruptus while the actor is working up ahead of steam. And I say, okay, stop. Let's now go for the close-up. I thought, this is weird. What if we could all do it in one take and let him just really, you know, work up ahead of steam? So I devised this thing where the camera was sort of dancing around him. It was like 23 marks he had to hit. And he comes on stage in full drag the whole thing and the question that everybody asks you know was that his real chest and i have to say yes that is his real chest it was a guy in great shape and there he he was and he was letter perfect and he hit every mark when i showed him where it was everything except 
that he screamed the whole thing at the top of his lungs and the whole crew, everybody standing around. And I, this is only the second movie I ever made, and I thought, what if I, can I talk to him about something or is he going to hit me? <laughs> um, and I, because I, I didn't really know. You know, and the, the question that somebody once said that the, 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 the question all actors want to know about the director is, is he crazy? Am I going to survive? Do I have to pull the boat over the mountain? <laughs> uh, and so Montalban, very courtly, very beautifully mannered, very elegant guy. And we had met and we'd had lunch. That's all we'd had. And I gave him a copy of Moby Dick. And I said, here, read this. It's the whole thing. <laughs> and uh, so now we're... We're walking away. I said, Let, well, let's go into your trailer and, you know, talk about uh, interpretation. And so he goes, he nods, we sit down. And I said to him, um, you know, Laurence Olivier once said that an actor should never show an audience his top. Because once you show them your top, they know you've got no place else to go. And he looked at me and he said, ah, you're going to direct me. This is good. I don't know what I'm doing up there. I need direction. Amazing. And that was the beginning of this collaboration. Yeah. And he was very smart. So all he had to do was put the beginning of a thought in his head, and he would take it and run with it. So I remember saying to him, I said, you know, here's the thing. If you're a crazy person, you never really have to raise your voice. Because people just don't know what you're going to do next. And <laughs> so, that, so we had this great collaboration. He would you know, look at me and say, Nick, is it okay if I raise the eyebrow? And I would say, yeah, it's not too high. Um, well, he, and he does, and you, this collaboration does thread that needle very well. And that it's it's hammy without being too over the top, and it's it's on the level for me of like Hannibal Lecter. It's like it's he's that, a genuinely scary. It's a fantastic a, performance. There are a few great psychotics on screen. Obviously, Hannibal Lecter. Um, I would argue that one of the best is Robert. Walker and Strangers on a Train. Sure. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I had not thought of Khan in, in, in that number, but yeah. What I said watching him in that scene, I said to him later, I said, you should be playing Lear. Um, and he made some uh, disparaging remark about his accent. I said, it's not going to matter. Yeah. You articulate perfectly you can understand every word that's the role you should play and it's very sad that he didn't but Khan, yeah. i suppose in some ways is as close as he came the um it, it's also kind of ironic in that the next star trek collaboration was on star trek 4 which you were a, a, one of the writers on a film that basically doesn't have a villain <laughs> it does but the villain is unseen well okay so t- talk to me about that is that challenging for you as a as a director not to have kind of the the personification of evil in, in the form of, of someone like Khan, and it's a little more esoteric, a little more amorphous than something like Voyage Home? Well, I didn't direct four, it should be pointed out. I, I, I wrote most of it. I wrote all the scenes on Earth. Um, somebody asked me 
on one of the Star Trek albums, uh, what are they, DVDs, sure. was, you know, we were discussing about who were the greatest villains. And I said, the greatest villain is in Star Trek Four, And that's us. And it's an unseen villain, but if the whales are extinct, we're it's dis- our we're fault. We're destroying ourselves. We're destroying yeah. ourselves. Yeah. And... I th- I think as far as you know, villains in movies, I don't believe there's rules. I don't think there's a three act structure. I don't think you can learn this out of a book on screenwriting. And there's uh, there's no formula to this. And when you get into formulas, you get into very risky but also sort of predictable territory. An English sonnet has a form. There's an A, B, A, B, C, D, C, B. There's a quatrains and how it works and resolves and the propositions. And symphonies have a form. But I don't think drama has a form so much as a series of ideas. What is the major dramatic question that the audience stays to hear the answer for? Um, do you have to have a villain? Do you have to have a three-action? You don't have to have shit. <laughs> All you have to do, Henry James said that the least demand that you can make of a work of art is that it be interesting, and the most demand is that it be moving. Star Trek Four, I, I, I would argue, is interesting. It's also moving. It's also funny. Yep. Um, and if the villain doesn't come on stage, so what? It'll, you know, it'll come on stage later when you're opening the refrigerator, you know. You go, who's the bad guy in this movie? Well, (laughs) all roads lead to uh, Colonel Mustard in the conservatory (laughs) with the lead pipe. Does does writing get easier? No. Is 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 it frustrating? Is it enjoyable? Is it... When it's going well... It's really enjoyable, and time passes, and you look up, and you don't know where you've been, and you, but you've been someplace in a state of flow. Um, you know, in, in uh, Plato, Socrates is told by the oracle at Delphi that he's the wisest man in Greece, and he thinks, that can't be right. <laughs> and all I have to do is find someone wiser than me, and I'll disprove that. And he talks to all segments of Greek society, and he said, and finally I got around to the poets. And I think we can take him to mean artists in general. And he said, and I thought, surely these people who have written and sculpted and so insightfully about the human condition will prove to be wiser than I. And he said, I found out that this and that was so not true, that these were the stupidest people of the whole bunch that I spoke to. They were really like children. They, they, they were, it was all nonsense, except when they were doing their art. And then they went into a kind of trance during which they took dictation from God. And this they call inspiration. And writing, when it's going really well, you know, maybe it's a little pretentious to say you're taking dictation from God, but you're in a state of flow. It's an altered state. It's It's an altered state of some kind. When it's, a lot of times it isn't, it takes a while to get there. 
And sometimes you never get there, and you have to do it anyway because you're on deadline or whatever, and you're pulling rabbits out of hats, and you don't even have the hat. Um, and it's like pulling teeth instead of rabbits. But ever since I was a kid, I was a storyteller. I just tell stories, and it never mattered to me whether it was a happy story or a sad story or a story in the past, a story in the present, a story in the future. What Polonius says, historical, pastoral, pastoral, tragical, tragical, comedic or whatever. It's just so long it was a good story. And somebody said to me, well, what's, what's your definition of a good story? And I said, a good story is a story is that once you hear it, you understand why somebody wanted to tell it to you. This is not rocket science. It's been um, 25 years since you've worked on Trek, and everyone's very excited that you're a part of this new Brian Fuller-created uh, Star Trek Discovery. Um, my, my question is not actually related to the new series, which I know you can talk very little about. If I would all. have to kill you. <laughs> it's okay. I'll take one for the team. But in the, the last uh, 25 years, have you been approached on other Trek projects? Have, have Never. Have been, really? That's surprising to me. Is it surprising to you? Well, to the degree that I've ever given it thought, <laughs> um, I suppose it's surprising. But maybe... Nobody wanted to seem reliant. Go backwards. No pun intended and, you know. on on me. Right. Uh, which I could also understand. And it, it should be said in this podcast that this is Brian Fuller's show. This is not my show. I am part of a team that we're you know we're all doing the best we can, and music will save it. <laughs> is the um, so he has said that it is uh, one of the things that's making this show unique is that it is from the perspective of someone other than the captain. In fact, he said it's number one. It's the presumably the first officer. Um, oh, saved by saved by the phone. See, it's Brian Fuller calling to say stop talking. Do you need to take that, sir? No, I'm not taking it. <laughs> so I guess my, my question is: Does that altered perspective give this kind of a? a Something unique, something unique that we haven't seen in Trek before. Well, let's hope so, because if all we're doing is retreading other versions of the same thing, I think that would be tedious. No, I think he's. I think there are two things that he's got hold of that are make this substantively different, and the idea that it isn't from the captain's point of view is one of those things. What in that? writer's room, as it were, do you feel like you have a specific role that's different than what others bring to the table in terms of like what you can contribute to this show, what your expertise is, as opposed to someone else's? I don't think that's how it works. I think I'm just part of this group. Yeah. And has it been fun and exciting to kind of go back to Star Trek? I mean, you also aren't shackled by writing pre-existing characters, which is kind of cool. You don't have to write our vision of what Kirk and Spock is, etc., um, it is a fun experience. I have not been in a lot of writers' rooms. I've been in a few. Um, I've, I wrote the first two episodes of the Medici Masters of Florence with mm. Dustin Hoffman, which which will wind up on American television. It's, it's uh, and I also have been working on. Um, I, I did a, uh, an episode of a show called uh, Crossing Lines. Mm -hmm. And I, I've done something else where I've been in in the room. Yeah. Um, 
And so I'm getting used to that whole idea. The thing that I have to get used to is that movies from big studios a lot of times are not movies that I have any interest in seeing anymore. They're sort of wind-up toys or something, and I can't do that. And most of the most interesting work, I'm sure we're all agreed, is now being done on television, largely cable or streaming or whatever, where, where the writing is happening. So in that sense, it is a very welcome and challenging change. You want to stay young, just keep scaring yourself and you know trying to do things that you've never done before. So I like being in the room, and, I, and I'm certainly not the eminence grise um, that I might style myself before going to sleep. I don't get that in the room. <laughs> Is, um, have you reconciled, or did it take reconciling over the years, kind of your association with Trek? Because, I mean, these films, you know, they've dominated our conversation, but there's a lot of work we haven't even gotten to that has nothing to do with Star Trek, obviously. The Day After. The Day After, which is still, I think, the most watched movie t- ever made for television. Which affected me and many as a, as a, as a kid myself. Um, changed American nuclear policy. Changed the mind of the President of the United States about a winnable nuclear war. That's, that's something of an accomplishment. That's probably the most worthwhile thing I got to do with my life so far. I, I don't know if I can change President Trump's mind about oh anything. God, don't even say the words. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but has it, is it something that's taken some reconciling that like you are so associated with this iconic franchise, sometimes to the detriment of the other work that's maybe ignored? Yes. It's something I've had to get used to. And the other examples I use are Arthur Conan Doyle, whose <laughs> historical novels um, like The White Company and, and uh, Rodney Stone and stuff are really rather terrific books in which he put a tremendous amount of effort and research and you know, he really threw himself into it as opposed to the home stories, which he could dash off in about a week. Right. And yet it is for the home stories that people persist in mainly remembering him. I mean, maybe some people remember for the lost world, but mainly. And then there's Arthur Sullivan, mm-hmm. who was supposedly the English Mendelssohn, the shining white hope of British music and... Um, but whose fame rests on the light operettas that he wrote with Gilbert. And the, you, I think you have to try to sort of deal with a good grace. Right. You're not going to get me to knock Star Trek. Sure. I, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that I'm a part of something. Um, I do hope that, yeah, people will watch The 7% Solution or Time After Time or, or look at the day after if, if, if you can bear it. Um, but I'm not here to gripe about being um, what's the I, respected or remembered because of the Star Trek stuff. Absolutely right. not. A lot of worthy work to look at. I know from past interviews, maybe you, you wouldn't point people towards company business, which we didn't even get to because I, I love a good Gene Hackman story. And I know he's, I mean, he's arguably my favorite actor, but I know from talking to many filmmakers over the years was not necessarily the most easiest man to deal with for the likes of you or even Wes Anderson or many great filmmakers. Hmm. He's just... <laughs> hmm. Wait, the notoriously loquacious Nicholas Meyer has fallen silent. Hmm. 
<laughs> okay, well, we, we'll leave it on that tantalizing um, silence. And uh, I'll just say uh, thank you for your time today, and thank you for the great work you've contributed over the years. And I'm, and I'm so happy we're going to see more of it on Star Trek Discovery. Well, I hope you do. Thank you. Thank you.